Michael Rosenblum. What inspired you to get into the media field? Well, that's a long, involved story. I was actually a doctoral candidate in Islamic history. And uh, I was uh, working on my dissertation because I didn't have any money. So uh, I went to work for a temp agency. You know, these please go type for $10 an hour. And I went to a, a bank and an insurance company and a law firm. You sit there typing all this. Uh, you know, it's a long time ago. And then uh, I got sent to a television studio, which I didn't know anything about. And uh, but the second or third day I was there, everybody started running around screaming and yelling and the place went crazy. And I turned to the guy next to me. I said, what, what's going on? And he said, uh, uh, the, um, the, uh, the Iranians just seized our embassy in Tehran. And I went, oh, really? That's interesting. And uh, the executive producer of the show, a guy named George Merlis, came out. It's a good morning, America. And it gave everybody a job. You call the White House. You call the Pentagon. You call this. You call that. So he pointed at me. I was a type. He says, you call uh, the Islamic Center in Washington. So I picked up the phone and I went, Salam alaikum, ya Sadiq, I'm in al good morning, America. And this guy grabbed me, he goes, you speak Arabic? And I went, uh, yeah. And he goes, where did you learn? I said, when I lived in Iran. And I, they speak Farsi in Iran to begin with. And so uh, he said, you know anything about these hostages? I went, sure. <laughs> Fucking thing. And so they hired me on the spot as the Middle East expert for ABC News. And that is how I got in the television business. <laughs> Wow, and a very <laughs> successful career. Can you tell me? Well, a bit about so far, journey? so good. Yeah, so far, so, so uh, good. Yes. <laughs> after after my experience at Good Morning America, I went to work for. Uh, um, I went to Columbia Journalism School, which is an utter and unmitigated waste of time and money. And uh, then um, uh, I got a job at a local television station in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, the public television station there and uh, worked on a show called Mainstream, which was on 6.30 Saturday mornings. Not even my mother would get up to watch this thing. And uh, uh, because they left me alone and there was a camera guy there and, a, and an editor, they didn't know what to do. So we started making these little mini documentaries that would air at 6.30 in the morning on Saturday. And in five years, I won five Emmys for my work. And so I got hired by CBS Network as a producer for Sunday morning, you know, the the, yeah. the, the still flagship show. So I went from making $300 a week to making $100,000 a year. I got myself a nice apartment on Central Park South and uh, flying all over the world for the network. And then I quit after two years because I thought it was all bullshit. And uh, so many people and all these correspondents, you had to prop up and they didn't do a fucking thing. And so um, I quit in an act of uh, what I would say is arrogance and ignorance, um, which you're allowed to do in your late 20s. I thought, screw you, CBS News. I can make television news by myself. It's for the internet. There's a clinically crazy thing to say. So I bought myself a small home video camera because I couldn't afford professional gear. And I went to live in a Palestinian refugee camp in the Gaza Strip just to show you how nothing has changed. And I moved in with a family and I started making my own little things for nobody. And eventually I ran out of money and I couldn't pay the rent. And I came home with my pile of tapes and I went to see a guy named Les Crystal, who was the executive producer of McNeil Lira News Hour, now PBS News Hour. And I said, look what I got. You know, I showed him my stuff and he bought two stories from me for $50,000, which was pretty good for one month's work. And uh, because it was much cheaper, if he had to send a cameraman, a soundman, a producer, an editor, hotels, meals, after, it cost him a fortune. So he said, what else can you do? I so I went to Cambodia and I moved in with the Khmer Rouge, the communist rebels in northern Cambodia. And then a guy named Ted Koppel found me and I spent three months in Uganda looking for the index case for AIDS and for Nightline. And now it's a pretty good gig. I could just travel around by myself with my little camera making stuff and people paid me for it. 
And I probably would have kept doing that had I not run into a, a Swedish billionaire named Jan Stenbeck. He was the first, he was starting the first commercial television networks in Scandinavia up until then, only SVT, the state broadcaster. And he understood the economics of what I had done, which I didn't really. He got, got rid of the cameraman, the sound man, the producer, the editor, and everybody else. And so he flew me to Stockholm and asked me this seminal, life-changing question. He said, can you teach other people to do this? And I said, any moron can do this. So he capitalized my first company with me, put up, I think, a million dollars and gave me 30% equity and based in Stockholm. And I started to build first television local stations and then national networks based on this simple model that today is called MMJ, although I think that's a stupid name. It's not multimedia. It's just video. Anyway, so I did TV3 Sweden, TV3 Norway, TV3 Denmark, all very successful. Obviously, it's cost nothing. And instead of sending out having five crews, you got like 50 people with cameras every day. And then um, I got a call from Time Warner, and they were starting the first commercial 24-hour news channel in New York, New York One. And they said, can you do that here? So I said, sure. So I did New York One. And of course, that led to a whole bunch of other clients. I did the BBC. I did Germans. I did Italians. I did Swiss. I did Belgians. I did Netherlands. I did a bunch of stations in the United States. And uh, then I went out on Wall Street and raised some of my own money and capitalized a business called Viz Video News International. And uh, my first investor was a guy named Nick Nicholas, who had been the chairman and CEO of Time Life Magazines before it became Time Warner. And they were closing down Life Magazine. So he took me to the office of Life Magazine and introduced me to all the greatest still photographers in the world. I mean, these unbelievable names. They're all going to get fired. And so he said, they're yours. So I taught them video, and they became my first. I had 102 former Life Magazine photographers and Magnum and places like that working for me, shooting videos. And so I started making stuff. And the very first documentary I ever made is called Killer Virus for the Learning Channel. And at the Emmy Awards, they had the Emmy for, you know, best whatever it was. And they said, NBC News, CBS News, ABC News, and the Learning Channel. And the winner is the Learning Channel. <laughs> Isn't that hard to do when you think about the people I had working for me? I mean, they were really fantastic journalists, highly driven by visuals. So that company, I sold 51% to the New York Times, and I became the president of New York Times Television, taking the Times into um, into television for the first time. And it's a long involved story, but I produced tons and tons of reality shows and documentaries, all kinds of crap, always using this same technique, one person, one camera. I don't believe in editors, tripods, any of that shit. And... Uh, you know, I, I mean, and I kept doing the stations and uh, the um, around, I opened a video bar and cafe in New York on the Lower East Side, across the street from CBGB, the uh, the punk oh, rock yeah. club. And anybody come in, I give them out cameras, we'd have screenings, you know, it was a fun thing. And then uh, in 2001, Al Gore came in, he had just lost the election for the presidency. So he said, uh, he said, I want to start a TV channel. Okay. He says, it's going to be history or politics. I said, oh man. People are starting to make their own. This is before YouTube. I said, people are making their own stuff. So I partnered with Al, and we created a channel called Current TV, which is the first user-generated uh, television channel in 30 million homes. And we sold that seven years later to Al Jazeera for $500 million, which was a pretty good deal. Yeah. And so I thought, yeah, that was all right. And so I thought, okay, well, that's been fun. And uh, then I got approached by uh, Spectrum, and Spectrum Charter had bought Time Warner's cable system. And they had, so they got New York One, and they decided they wanted to do a 24-hour news channel in Los Angeles. And uh, they came to me, and since I'd done New York One, and they said, we want to do one in LA. It's a very competitive market. 
And I said, well, I'll do it, but I'm not going to do the same stupid thing everybody else does with the stand-ups and all that kind of stuff. So I flew out to L.A., and I said, well, we'll do it, but we're not using cameras. We're just going to use phones. This was eight years ago, so it's the iPhone 7, 8. I said, we're only going to use phones. We're going to use iPhones, and instead of doing local news, which is unwatchable, um, we're going to make little movies. In other words, you know, Hollywood and Netflix meets journalism. Well, you know, they they they. I, I always like to deal with people who have no television experience because they're open to new ideas. So they yeah. went okay, and in eighteen months, Spectrum One in LA went from zero to the number one rated cable channel in the LA market. So they came back and they said, "We want to roll this out across the country." So the last eight years, I've been building out twenty six local television news channels, Texas, the Connecticut, all based on this model, just MMJs and only phones and only making movies. And then two years ago, CBS News came to me and said, uh, this obviously works. So for the last two years, I've also been working with CBS, converting their stations. And the first pilot we did was KPIX, which is the CBS affiliate in San Francisco. And they were rated number five in the market. And by the time we finished, they were rated number one in the market. So CBS, we're now with CBS, we're rolling this out at a rapid clip. And due to the miracle of the internet and broadband, I'm able to do the entire thing from my little house here in England, and I never leave. So it's all it all worked out pretty well. And that's my little story in a nutshell. Yeah. Uh, my background is I was in local broadcasting for a long time. And like you said, everyone had, you know, a camera lighting and all that stuff and multiple people doing it. And right now I create the best content I've ever created with my phone and a $25 microphone. So how important is it for more people to get their voices out into broadcasting? yeah, it's it's kind of a it's a funny kind of a mixed bag because I've always been a great fan of the democratization of the medium. That was always a driving force. That having been said, um, when you look at things like TikTok or uh, you know Instagram, it's terrifying the kind of crap that's on there because there's no filters. So I was on TikTok the other day, and as you know, if you stay any time on TikTok, and there's 1.9 billion people on TikTok. Um, uh, the earth is actually flat and it's full of fantastic scientific proofs that will tell you that, that uh, no one ever went to the moon and it's full of great, you know, evidence of that. And um, uh, the, I found out last week that Princess Diana was actually killed by Zionists because she was about to recognize Palestine. That I had no idea that happened either. So um, open platforms like Instagram and that kind of stuff, they're very um, uh, frightening in some ways because uh, there's a whole generation of people who are incapable of, because they grew up on social media, they're incapable of differentiating between fact and fiction. I, I, there's a lovely guy who works for me, he's the gardener. He's a very nice guy, and he's not stupid. He's fairly bright, and I get in discussions with him, and mind-boggling to me. The other day, he was telling me how Atlantis was actually a real place because he saw uh, uh, you know, something on uh, YouTube about it. And he says, I know that they didn't have advanced science like some people said it was actually real. <laughs> he can't. He's a very nice guy, but he's incapable of differentiating. So the, uh, the Pew Foundation did a recent study, and they said 50% of Americans uh, get their, their news primarily from social media. And a terrifying 83% of people 16 to 25 get their news from social media. And social media is filled with sort of nonsense. So when I started talking to CBS, I said, the problem here is that you guys, you're actually focusing on truth and journalism and doing a lot of work. But if nobody watches it, there's no point in doing it. And so that's when they agreed to undergoing this, this kind of structural transformation 
of making movies instead of making news reports. And uh, so far, the numbers seem to bear out that people who watch Netflix have an inherent expectation that their news should be as entertaining as as the otherwise they change the channel because they get bored very quickly. So this notion of migrating journalism and marrying it to character, arc of story, resolution, dramatic effort seems to be at least one path to improving the circulation of at least some kind of qualified journalism. But it's a, we're heading to a very, very frightening area now. Yeah, with both things open platform where, you know, it's raw and some of the things, especially nonprofits and stuff, create pretty good content, but the broadcasting with the high quality content, but not necessarily listen to the audience. Do they need to come together for the future of journalism? Well, this future journalism is a problem. I've been part of a lot of startups, as you can imagine. People come to say, I want to start a news channel, I want to do this. And the problem with some of these people with the best of intentions, but they don't pay attention to the revenue because in the whole journalism business, Journalism has been inculcated and infected since its almost inception with this notion that making money is somehow evil. You know, the famous quote, um, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And so even when I was, when I was, first I was a student at Columbia and then I taught at Columbia for many years. I taught at NYU for many years. And all the students were filled with this great sort of Watergate passion of, you know, we're the good guys. It's like a religious calling. And, and uh, if you watch movies about journalists, you know, they're always the, the people in the ratty car and the crappy apartment, you know, the bad clothing, but they're doing God's work and they come out the winner in the end. And the notion of paying attention to the business side is always anathema. They're, that's for business people. We don't get involved. So many of these people with these startups for news online, and of course, that, there's no barrier to entry anymore. So anybody can do this. In my experience, they don't pay any attention to the revenue. It, it's, it's an afterthought. Well, we're going to like vice. We'll do really good stuff and everyone will come to us, but people don't come to you and it costs money. And the, the basic rule when I talk to anybody is if there's no revenue, there's no journalism. So revenue has to come first. Well, how do you generate revenue with news? It's very difficult because we're so used to seeing it for free all the time. And that's that's the primary problem with you know saving journalism. And it's not going to be done by nonprofits. I have a lot of friends of mine who went to Columbia. You know, they're all unemployed now because all their publications have been out of business. And their solution is, well, we need a billionaire to buy the paper like Bezos bought the Washington Post. So he won't care if we lose $100 million here. Or we have to go beg money from foundations and make nonprofits. This is not a good model in either way. For you, what do you enjoy about creating these uh, mini movies? Well, I, I don't think it's, it's not so much the enjoyment of the mini movies. What I like is the um, the I was I greatly instructed in how to do this by uh, I read um, Walter Isaacson's uh, biography of of um, Elon Musk, and when Musk got in the electric car business, other people have been in the electric car business for years. He was not the first one to do this with Tesla. But he said that the cars look like golf carts, you know, the the uh, the Leaf and the the uh, the the Volt, and they they do look like golf carts, and they drove like golf carts. So when he he acquired Tesla, started to build, he designed the car. It's a fascinating book. He designed the cars, every inch of the cars he designed to create a car. He said, "I want to create a car that people want to own. They'll be proud to own. They'll show off to their friends." And it's a very cool looking car, Tesla, and that's what made Tesla now has the valuation 12 times General Motors and 14 times Ford because he built a car that people actually want to buy. It's, he was 
focused on the driver experience. And if you read Steve Jobs' biography, also by Walter Isaacson, um, his focus on iPhones and iMacs and MacBooks and all the history of his stuff, his focus, as you know, was was on the aesthetic. It was on the um, the what he called the user experience. So when we work with people like CBS, um, we always say the focus here when you make your stories of the journalists is not getting the facts right, no stand-ups and interviews and man on the streets of bullshit. So the focus here has to be on the viewer experience. In other words, when you go out as a journalist, you have to put yourself in the mindset of the viewer. What as a viewer, and you're all viewers, what as a viewer do I want to see? What would make me want to watch this? And it's the same in the application. And we find that when we get their head out of this journalism school, five W's and all that kind of nonsense. And we put them in the mindset of essentially, I said, you know, you're filmmakers here, but you have an audience that you have to attract. So you all watch movies, you all watch, you all watch, um, uh, uh, you know, Netflix and, and, and Apple and Amazon. So when you go out to shoot your little films, you have to say to yourself, I'm making a movie here for Netflix. And as a viewer, what do I want to see? And we find that if we can wrap their head around that, then they can start to make things that people actually, and the ratings reflect it, but it's, yeah. it's have to focus on the viewer experience as our client, not as we're not, I always tell people who quit the, who get thrown out of the, the things end because they said, I don't understand. We did such good journalism. I said, yeah. go in the food business now and open a chain called <laughs> McBroccoli. It'd be really the same idea. Sorry, that's, that was a good one. Uh, <laughs> What are some of the things that motivate you? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I've been doing this for so long. You know, I'm 70 years old now, and, and uh, you'd think I could retire, but I just I don't know what else I would do with my time. So, you know, this notion of teaching people. I've always liked to teach, and teaching people and seeing them go through this transformation is, is uh, wonderfully gratifying. And you do, you know, I run these boot camps, and... Uh, uh, these uh, at the beginning, they're a mess, and and I do it in partnership with my wife, who I met. She was at the BBC, and she really brings the journalism to this thing. But um, the um, the, uh, the and she runs the business side, which is important. But um, when we see the transformation, you know, they come in kind of lost and frightened and uncertain and kind of clinging to their, you know, their things they learned in journalism school when they went like, don't cross the line, and you have to interview people. And we the first thing we say is we don't do any interviews. Never interview anybody again. You never see an interview in a Netflix movie your entire life. So uh, we're, we're and when we see the transformation that goes on and the satisfaction they have because they often come back and say, "I feel proud of my work for the first time." Nobody as a journalist feels proud of doing a stand up in a man on the street in an interview. They just it's nothing to be proud of. But I think that that that's the most satisfying part of of what we do. What have you learned from your wife? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story about that. Um, she, I was married to somebody else before, and she was a really terrible person. And uh, she was my student at Columbia, and uh, she now produces The Real Housewives of Atlanta. I taught her how to do this. So, uh, but that's another story. But um, when uh, when I met my wife, uh, you know, it was a second marriage, and she she was British. She was I met her at the BBC, and she sold her home in uh, England, came to New York, and she came with a pile of money from selling the house. And uh, came to New York and she said, what should I do with this? And I said, I got this great investment guy. You know, she's terrific and guaranteed returns and he'll take care of your money. And she said, I want to meet him. Went, okay. 
So she met him and then she said, I don't trust him. I said, what do you mean? She says, I don't like him. I don't trust him. We got to get your money out of there. I said, come on. She said, well, you know, it's a new marriage. I thought, all right, so go find something else. So she took me to the private bank of New York with these guys with, you know, three-piece suits and flip charts and all. I've never seen anything like that. And I went, okay. So I moved the money and it took about two years to unwind it. And uh, two years later, the guy that I tried to introduce was named Bertie Madoff. You may have heard of him. So <laughs> after that, I said, you handle the business from here. I'm not doing anything. <laughs> Genius. When you uh, do these video uh, boot camps, do you see people's confidence level rise as they learn yes. this new style? Yeah. we. I mean, the way we work the boot camps is they, they come in and they make two pieces during the boot camp. And the first one, we give very, very circumscribed rules about what to do. It's very, very limited. Just I always say, from now on, the only thing you know is what I tell you. And if I don't tell you, it doesn't exist. So don't do it. And then we run these screenings, which I used to call public praise, public humiliation, but you're not allowed to do that anymore. But it doesn't matter because when you put people's work up, everybody knows what looks good. And you don't have to sit there and go, this is good. This is bad. They see it right away. And so this notion of sharing the work in front of everybody else makes a very quick learning curve. It's interesting. Most people in the television business, they never see their own work, except maybe, you know, they watch it at home with their, their spouse or their mother or something, but they not have the experience of sitting in a room full of their coworkers and saying, this is mine. It's really being exposed in a very, very unprotected way. And that exposure forces them to get very, very good, very, very fast. And they do. They're capable of doing much more than they believe they're capable of doing because nobody at television networks makes any real demands on anybody. Yeah. Where do you want to see the business in the next uh, three to five years? Well, I think, you know, it's hard to say. I, I think that, you know, personally, I think we're on a pretty good track. Mm. Um, I think that there, there's a lot of challenges ahead. And the challenges are really come. The biggest challenge is, is artificial intelligence, which I find absolutely terrifying. Because um, you, you um, the thing about AI is it's neither intelligent nor is it artificial. What it actually is is just plagiarism on a massive scale. All AI does is dip into existing content that already exists online and chops and dices and rearranges it. So as everybody starts to use AI, which is obviously very inexpensive, very easy to do, it puts us in kind of a creative cul-de-sac because nothing new will ever be created. It'll just be repurposing stuff that was there before. And that to me is, I don't know how you fight that because it's so cheap. Everybody's obviously going to gravitate toward it. But I, I'm very frightened of AI. Not that for the, it's going to create robot overlords, but it's going to essentially destroy people's motivation, which I think it does already. Well, one of my favorite tools to use in storytelling is empathy. Do you think, I mean, with AI, it can't be empathetic. So do you need emotion in storytelling? Well, the guidebook for, for me and the guidebook for all the stuff that we do is Joseph Campbell's, you know, um, Hero with a Thousand Faces. It's the journey of the hero. And that, uh, you know, as, as you probably know, that's Steven Spielberg's guidebook and George Lucas's guidebook. And basic human storytelling hasn't changed much in the last 5,000 years. And of course, that's the point of Campbell's book. So what we do is we we take journalism, I mean, real reporting stories about real stories about real people, and we plug it into this kind of Campbellian architecture of the journey of the hero. And it resonates with people. There's something deep in our DNA that that responds 
to that kind of storytelling. I don't know why, but since the time of Moses or Homer, the stories are basically all the same. Mm 